Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very pleased to have Peter Mancall on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Fatal Journey, The Final Expedition of Henry Hudson, A Tale of Mutiny and Murder in the Arctic. As you probably know, Henry Hudson was an explorer. He hoped to find a way over Canada or over Russia to what Englishmen of his day called the South Sea. He tried not once, not twice, not three times, but four times to find the Northwest or the Northeast Passage. On each of these occasions, he failed. On the final of these occasions, he lost his life to mutineers. This is a terrific story, one that is both historically significant and uh, downright interesting. And Peter does a fantastic job of telling the tale. I really enjoyed talking to him today, and I imagine that you will enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Peter. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm doing just fine. How are you doing? I'm very well. You're in sunny Southern California. Is that correct? Well, actually, it is sunny today because the smokes from the fire are finally starting to clear. But uh, yes, it is a beautiful day today. Right, the fire. So you're safe and everything, you and yours. We are fine where we are. We're about um, 30 or so miles uh, from the edge of the fire line, so we're fine. Well, Thanks. I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. We're fine here, too. I should tell our listeners that we're talking to Peter Mancall today about his new book, Fatal Journey, The Final Expedition of Henry Hudson, A Tale of Mutiny and Murder in the Arctic. It's a, it's a rip and read. I, I suggest that you go get it. Uh, Peter does a terrific job of uh, making uh, what is really a pretty complicated uh, story based on pretty fragmentary sources, uh, very readable and interesting. And that is, as I was telling him in the pre-interview, a talent that uh, very few of us have, and I certainly don't. So um, you, you, I, I should congratulate uh, him on that, and I encourage you, dear listeners, to go out and buy the book. Um, Peter, why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. I was born in Philadelphia, I am a uh, graduate of uh, Germantown Friends School, one of Philadelphia's great Quaker schools. I then went to Oberlin College, uh, where I sort of began thinking about history. And when I graduated, I went off to Harvard, uh, thinking I would do modern American history. And then in my first semester, I took a seminar with Bernard Balin, and it just sort of you know, opened my eyes to all sorts of new possibilities. And I quickly, I very quickly became uh, one of his students. Uh, wrote a dissertation about the 18th century backcountry of New York and Pennsylvania. That got me into thinking about relations between Europeans and Native Americans, and then that fed into an interest uh, that led to a book about uh, Native American alcohol use called Deadly Medicine. At that point, and this was now the early to mid 1990s, at that point. I've become very interested in trying to understand much more about why relations had gone so, had developed so uh, poisonously uh, in Eastern North America. And so I I turned my attention much earlier uh, and started to look at sort of the formative period of the Anglo-American settlement. And after doing a little addition of documents for course use, I then launched uh, about a decade's worth of research um, into Richard Hacklett, uh, the younger Hacklett, great promoter of colonization and uh, publisher of travel narratives. And the Hacklett book uh, came out in 2007 called Hacklett's Promise. 
And then that sort of brought me, after uh, spending a long time writing a very large book, I sort of had a very strong desire um, uh, to write sort of something more fast-paced, that, you know, a real story, you know, and I often thought about that, you know, the great, you know, great saying from the church where, you know, a fat pope follows a thin pope or a young pope follows an old pope, and I'm thinking, well, maybe a short book could follow a long book. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that uh, uh, then brought me ultimately to uh, telling this story about Hudson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. How, how do you, you uh, initially uh, arrive at um, the uh, the topic of Hudson himself? Was it through Hackley? Yes. I mean, it was absolutely through Hacklett that I came onto Hudson. I mean, I've been reading Hacklett, especially the narrative. I mean, really concentrating on the narrative, um, looking towards uh, the Western Hemisphere. And uh, I've been studying uh, Hacklett for years, and I've been you know, puzzling over something that I find, I still find curious about Hacklett, that is a lot of American historians, I mean, people as you know really well, Marshall, people use Hacklett for all sorts of purposes mm-hmm. because there's, there's books or such treasure troves of information. American historians really tend to look at him as someone who got the Elizabethans going to sort of colonize North America. And he, he plays a really central role, and he's, he's mentioned all the time. Mentioned, I'm not sure how extensively read, but he's mentioned all the time, and he's used in some sense. And people, real historians of the American experience, rely on the parts of the principal navigations uh, that relate to North America, and they look at his discourse of Western planting, and they look at some other related documents. But in fact, after he finishes the expanded edition of the principal navigations, which comes, which is finished in 1600, he basically ignores North America for the rest of his career. He mm-hmm. sort of steps in to help the Virginia Company at one point, and he's, he's a stockholder of the Virginia Company, but his interests really shift to the East Indies. And I found that really interesting. You know, here are American historians who have forever, always been saying, once the English finally decided to get to North America and make a real commitment in North America, then colonization logically flowed. But here is one of the Elizabethans or early Stuarts who knew more about North America than most people living in England, and he thought that the future of England really should be in the Spice Islands. So I find that fascinating. And so as I'm reading through Hacklett and trying to understand what happens after 1600, I logically went then to Samuel Purchase, because Purchase ends up acquiring, as you know, Hacklett's manuscripts. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in Purchase, you know, he indicates when he gets something from Hacklett, Purchase indicates that he gets these Hudson narratives from Hacklett. And so I had read them, and I read, I mean, Hudson's, this whole Hudson experience happens while Hacklett is alive. Hacklett never writes about it, but obviously he knows about it. Uh, and I just really got into the, the mysteries, sort of the real complexities of these documents, because they were just uh, incredible, especially sort of the tale uh, that one survivor in particular spins about what happened in, in James Bay in the winter of 1610-1611. But to tell the story, I also thought I had to go back and really sort of say something about why a presumably rational person would not once, twice, or three times, but four years in a row get in a relatively small boat and head into the North Atlantic trying to find a route to the East Indies. Mm-hmm. So why don't you tell us about that? What, what, what was what, Hudson what, what, trying to do? 
So the basic motivation that Hudson has, and he's not alone in this, is the English are very interested, as all Europeans are interested, in finding spices. And they want to find spices for a variety of reasons. I mean, one of them, you know, obviously is, you know, to make their uh, food, you know, better tasting, although... When I was on a daily show, there's a thing that you know, John Stewart thought was hilarious, you know, that the English were after spices and then, of course, never used them for their food, as he mm-hmm. said. But as I talk about it in the book, I mean, I went back into this, and I read this also for the Hacklets, but I went back into the English literature on spices at exactly the time that Hudson is sailing, and there are all these fantastic herbals by John Gerard and others, and they go into real depth about the importance of these spices, not primarily for their dietary uh, use, although they have dietary use, but really for their medicinal use. So if you you could sprinkle cloves on something, you know your eyesight would get better. And if you sprinkled some mace, maybe you'd get rid of a case of heartburn. Uh, if you had a urinary tract infection, maybe you'd use a little uh, nutmeg. I mean, it sort of goes on and on. Uh, and then when it came to peppers, which became sort of the most important of these spices, there's a long list of things. Uh, that the English and other Europeans believe would happen if you consumed these spices. So if you sort of grind up some pepper, it would break a fever. It would get rid of a cough. Uh, it could it could get rid of a bout of uh, gout or sciatica. Uh, I mean, sort of on and on, headaches, tonsillitis. Uh, it would get rid of uh, worms. If you had leprous sores on your face, it was reported to cure. I mean, all these things. And so when you get into that literature, you get the sense of thinking, these guys going after spices aren't just trying to, like, sort of, you know, make, you know, uh, dessert taste better, uh, which might have been a benefit, but they think they're going to cure the problems of the world. Mm-hmm. And so when the English do this, the spice trade exists long before the English get involved. And that's kind of the story, really, of, of a lot of English expeditions that Hackle was on to, right? And other people are going there first. And Hackler says, okay, let's get the English to get these places also. But anyway, so by the time, you know, Hudson is doing this, uh, this is after the Protestant Reformation, and there are these texts from the late 16th century, the early 17th century, which are quite explicit, saying we need to go bring spices back uh, to Europe because we need to sort of take the trade away from of, the, of Catholics, away from Rome. I mean, we are the true Christians. God intends for us to survive. And they then infer from that, if, if we can get to the Spice Islands more quickly than, say, the Portuguese and the Spanish, especially the Portuguese who are going around Africa and then around India to get there, if we can find a northern route there, then we will come back with fresher spices, more powerful spices, and that will, in fact, be doing God's work. So Hudson you know, in terms of motivation, Hudson is looking at maps and thinking, I have got to find the quickest route over there, which will be both have great economic uh, glory, it have great, great for medicine, and it will be great for what he and other Protestants believe was true Christendom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, as you say, he uh, he tried a number of times, but there were a number of people who tried before he did to find both the... Uh, Northeastern Passage and the Northwestern Passage. Maybe oh, yeah. Say a few words about them. Oh, I'd be happy to. So, so basically, Hudson is looking at the most up-to-date maps he can find uh, in in England in the first years of the 17th century, and a number of these maps, uh, which we would look at and say, oh, they really don't understand much about the far northern parts of the world, 
a number of these maps, in fact, showed an open polar sea, which would freeze over in winter, but the, but the heat of the sun would melt it, and you could get across it in the summertime. And they also showed a northeastern passage over the northern edge of Russia, and they often showed a northwestern passage sort of over the top of Canada. Although no Europeans had ever at this point managed to get through any of these places or explored them really in much depth, but you know, they're putting together bits of information that they'd acquired. So for so Hudson first thinks he's going to go and sail straight north. This ends up not working, so he comes home. That was in 1607, same year as Jamestown, as I point out you know, to people. Mm-hmm. Next year, he says well, he's going to look for the Northeast Passage, which is going to take him uh, north of Russia. And here he knows all about the experiences of Will and Barron's. Mm-hmm. And this sort of uh, had three voyages uh, there in the 1590s, the last one of which is a disaster and ends with Barron's death. But nonetheless, you know, there are these documents about this voyage. So he try- so Hudson tries to go there, and it fails since he comes home again. He's hired in 1609 by the Dutch, and this really now, Barron's is very sort of culturally significant to the Dutch. And so he is now going to go and lead this mixed crew of English and Dutch sailors through the Northeast Passage. In fact, once again, ice blocks his way, and he has various options. He thinks about various options of what to do, and they discuss it on the ship, and then Hudson comes around to remembering uh, that Captain John Smith, who'd gone to Jamestown two years earlier, had told Hudson, this is what Hudson claimed later, had told Hudson that the Powhatan Indians of the Chesapeake region had said to the English, oh, by the way, there is this water route through the continent north of where we live. Now, I've always read that to believe that the Powhatans are saying this to, to Smith to say, by the way, you're in the wrong place. Why don't you leave now and go look for this passage? Um, but Hudson, but the English, but Hudson, you know, takes that pretty, Hudson sails across the Atlantic and he sees coasts. Uh, the maritime provinces of Canada. He goes as far south as the Chesapeake, he reports, though he doesn't go in. And then he sails back north, uh, and eventually, really about 400 years ago to the day that we're speaking, he more or less hits um, the water, the, you know, the, he hits what is now modern New York, mm-hmm. and a mm-hmm. few days later, uh, he sails up this river um, that now bears his name. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. That, yeah. So, so, Maybe we could talk a little Maybe bit about the um, equipment and the uh, the complement of these ships themselves. Because I think many, at least when I've talked to people about this, I, I think they have the um, notion that uh, they, they took something the size of the Queen Mary over. Right. Uh, when, it, when in fact, uh, we would look at these boats and wonder how they could go anywhere. So why don't you talk it about that? It is amazing. <laughs> right. So on the... On his last voyage, which is the one where, you know, which I sort of know the most about in terms of the details. So the last voyage, there are a crew of, well, Hudson plus 23 others. Two of the others are boys, and one of those boys happens to be Hudson's son, who was 17 years old at the time. And Hudson's son actually had gone with his father on each of his four journeys. Uh, it was, I am uh, the, uh, the father of a 17-year-old, and I find this completely amazing uh, that, that anyone, A, would risk their son, and B, would, would risk them, their, own, their own psychic health by doing this. But nonetheless, um, Hudson uh, just sort of always takes his son. So here are these 24 guys, no women, 
Um, then there are little clues, you know, you get, you know, there's a cat or two on board, uh, things like this. Anyway, they're on these ships which are so cramped, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine. And at one point after the mutiny, there's a description of, you know, sort of where people slept on the ship. And, you know, they're just basically crammed in any, in any sort of nook they could find. I mean, Hudson had sort of, you know, the captain's berth, which was a sealed room, uh, you know, which is obviously the best place to be on the ship. And then others, like the surgeon, had an okay place. But a lot of these people are literally just crammed everywhere. Um, this is, these ships are not that big. Uh, they are, um, oh, I'm always bad at length, but maybe these ships are 60, 70 feet long. This one, this was a 55-ton ship. Uh, it was the, the hold would have been packed um, with the food that could be preserved for such a trip, food which, as it sits there week after week after week, is not exactly tasting better when they finally open it up. So they would have had barreled beef, uh, pork, peas. Uh, they had a fair amount of beer, which was very common. Um, and then they carried tools for fishing because they knew that fishing would be their best way to get uh, fresh protein on the vessel. And, and they do uh, fish at times. In fact, that keeps them alive. Uh, with some regularity, and they also have guns on board, and those guns are important when they start to hunt birds. Um, and so it's just these sort of men cramped together going through these seas, which even in the summertime, that is in the height of the summer of 1610, they're still encountering icebergs. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, it's uh, they're... It was a very sort of difficult thing, and there is uh, though there doesn't there's no list of what the men wore for uh, on Hudson ship. There is a list of what men wore on a, one of the contemporary ships, and they presumably they wore the same thing on Hudson's, which were these very heavy uh, woolens uh, to sort of do their best to keep out moisture and to keep out uh, the really fierce winds that they suffered. But they wouldn't have been particularly comfortable, uh -huh. um, and so one of the they probably uh, would have been nice for them to learn, uh, would have been to sort of realize that the, some of the northern people they run into, the Inuit who they run into, are probably much more comfortable because they're much used to these extreme northern climates uh, than Hudson or his men are. So it is not in any way a pleasant experience. There are no luxuries on this ship. Some of the large ships that went to the East Indies at the time, I mean, these were much bigger operations with a couple of hundred people on them, and their accounts... You know, that these guys on some of these long journeys to India or the Spice Islands, they're producing Shakespeare, you know, on the decks. But that is not happening uh, on the Discovery or the Hell's Mine, the Half Moon that he sails across uh, when he goes to New York. I mean, these are small, utilitarian boats, uh, very good at surviving, you know, in the seas. I mean, Hudson ships always came back, so, you know, so they're very durable if, if men knew how to operate them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what are not comfortable. Yeah, one of the things I thought was very interesting is the uh, way in which uh, these ships had to be self-contained and it brought to mind space shots today. I mean, you really have to take everything with you that you're going to need because nobody out there is going to help you. 
That's so, exactly right. So the ships all had, um, you know, carpenters on board. They had a surgeon on board. Um, what other kinds of folks did they have on board? Because they really did need to be sort of self-contained units. They had to generate their own food and energy, and they had to fix themselves. They had to repair anything that went wrong. They had to minister to the crew. What, what other sort of uh, roles were there on the ship? Well, you named the, mo- the two most important people who were on the ship besides the captain. I mean, well, there's a third one I'll mention in a moment. But, but I mean, they, a ship's carpenter had very specific duties involved. I mean, among them, a ship's carpenter had to be there to be able to fix a ship that got pierced uh, by a rock or by an iceberg. I mean, this is a hugely significant skill, because if no one knows how to fix the ship, the ship goes down and everyone dies. So a good ship's carpenter who had to come equipped with his tools was very important. Uh, a surgeon... Uh, what they at least you know referred to as a surgeon, not someone we should we should, be, we should point out with modern medical training, but someone with some basic education, uh, but who could tend to the predictable kinds of things which are going to happen, and those predictable things were accidents. Uh, people are you know uh, you know are breaking legs all the time, arms falling. Um, if they were to encounter someone uh, who was hostile, someone could be you know shot with an arrow. That, in fact, happens on Hudson's journeys. Uh, I mean, you know, really sort of basic medicine. And then the surgeon invariably would have been consulted um, when the first sort of signs of scurvy are setting in. I mean, one of the real problems that these the men on these ships face is by just relying on this on this sort of barreled food. Even though they could get fresh protein from fish, they really need the kind of vitamins. Uh, you know, that come from fruit uh, and vegetables, uh, they eventually find them in the Arctic. In the Arctic, there are these grasses that grow very quickly, which the English, in fact, call scurvy grass to ward off scurvy, so they know the disease, and they stock up on this grass to the extent that they can, and the ship's surgeon presumably played a role in it. I think one of the most interesting people that they have on the ship, and this is actually really partly the result of Hacklett's prodding of the English to sort of become more modern in how to navigate. Hacklett said, you know, what other Europeans are doing really well is that they're taking a mathematician on board their ship Mm -hmm. because a mathematician will be the person who could use the relative, but we would consider very rudimentary navigational tools to really plot uh, distances, to plot where one was, to help really map coastlines, and so they can bring back useful knowledge, not to sort of say, oh, well, you know, on the fourth day we ran into an island, but for someone to say at latitude 78 and at, I'm guessing at longitude X, you know, there's this. I mean, one of the things that we forget about the 17th century is that it's not until the 18th century that Europeans develop a chronometer, a very accurate clock that would work at sea. And without an accurate clock, there's no way to measure longitude. And so they're sailing westward. They, they know which way they're going. They have a compass, and they have some other basic things they can guide um, via the stars. But they don't really know how far they've gone. This is where the deception, it's, you know, it's very hard to measure. And here's where a mathematician could be very useful, because a mathematician might be able to at least make approximate guesses about where they were. And so Hudson had a mathematician on board, uh, a, a, a a young guy, and uh, university trained, as far as we know, uh, and with the other sailors, one of the surviving reports, the mathematician does not make it home again, and one of the surviving reports uh, he has, says, you know, he was sick since the journey started, 
And it's hard to know exactly what that means, but I think it's quite reasonably means that this guy just had seasickness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the others on the ship, uh, the most of the crew on the ship who are doing sort of the what we would think was kind of the grunt labor, of, you know, tending the sails, you know, trying to keep the ship in the right place, um, doing the fishing. These were, as far as we can surmise, we know very little about any of these people on Hudson Voyages. But as far as we can tell from other voyages, these are tend to be young men, uh, probably single, although, again, in Hudson's case, we don't know, who gathered around the docks in London, and when someone was organizing a ship, they would go down and they would presumably chat people up and say, here's where we're going, here's what we'll pay you, will you come on board? And we know from an English statute from the early 16th century that these people tend not to hang around the docks very long. So we know that ship captains or the merchants who are support are supporting the, the who are providing the finances for the vessels. We know that they recognize you know people have these practical skills, and so they get snapped up pretty quickly. And so Hudson's crew was presumably composed of people who felt pretty comfortable uh, at sea for a very long voyage. And some of them, I mean, they're growing up in London. Historians have talked about this, you know, really great. Like this is not. Um, you know, an economically prosperous place for those who were not fortunate. Uh, it was very uh, tough going and men, you know, desperately looking for work. And so, you know, if, you know sir, I always sort of imagine Hudson. We don't, and we don't know what Hudson looks like, of course. But I sort of imagine Hudson, you know, where some of his backers going down to the docks and saying, okay, you know, we're going to go on this voyage and the voyage is going to end up in the East Indies, you know, in the tropics. Uh, and, you know, there are going to be spices there and all sorts of adventure, and I can imagine it being somewhat appealing. But, you know, we just don't have a lot of the documentation for what their life was like. Mm -hmm. You know, interestingly, although I didn't talk about this in the book, when we start to get that really substantial documentation, which is for these long-distance whaling voyages in the 19th century, at least for the American experience, so books like Nathaniel Philbrick's In the Heart of the Sea, you know, you can see sort of the recruitment of the same sort of young male, uh, mobile population. In his case, people had families back in New England. Um, but the contracts that these people sign with the ship captains, this is in the 19th century, the contracts that they're signing, uh, you know, basically say, yes, you know, we'll pay you X, but by the way, if you need Y or Z, if you need a new coat, for example, if you need this, then we're going to take it away from your wages. And so that by the end, even people who would survive a voyage might not get paid for it because they essentially would have spent all of their salary on what they needed. So, you know, I sort of use these little, you know, fragments of information uh, to put together the idea that the people that got on these ships were people who were looking for work, very common in England at the time. I think probably had a sense of adventure about them, certainly uh, a tolerance of risk, uh, which would, was enormous. Many people don't come back from these long-distance voyages. And people who who had who offered certain uh, skills uh, that someone running a ship, knowing they'd be in close quarters with them for weeks on end, uh, would find valuable. Mm-hmm. About how long, about did, how these long did these voyages generally, generally last? last? Well, Hudson's voyages typically would run. He would leave. Uh, he liked leaving England in April. Um, and, I mean, northern voyages have a very specific dynamic to them. I mean, a voyage that would leave, say, Spain or Port, let's say take Portugal as an example, because there's a lot of Portuguese ships going back and forth 
to the East Indies, or English ships actually that go to India or push on to the Spice Islands. I mean, those kind of ships, a round trip, a typical round trip, uh, you know, could be two years. It could be more than mm-hmm. two years. Uh, it's because it's not because they're at sea the whole time. They're at sea a certain amount of time, but they keep, you know, they keep landing to take on fresh provisions, to trade with locals, whoever they may be. And it just takes a long time to do things. So that was a pretty long mm-hmm. expedition. But they're doing those. Those happen in waters that, though there are storms, which obviously are devastating. And there's a whole genre of Portuguese uh, shipwreck narratives. I mean, we know a lot of ships go down in storms. But they are sailing in waters that basically remain ice-free. A northern expedition has a very different calculation to it. Hudson realizes, and all of his voyages essentially uh, are northern voyages. Even the one where he goes to New York starts off as a northern voyage. He has to make a calculation, uh, basically, when can he, how far north can he get with the ice retreating during the summer? And he has to be far into his journey at the height of the summer because the ice is going to come back, as he knows. And other Europeans, I mean, he was not the first, he read about this. Other Europeans knew that ice is going to come back. And when ice comes back, you know, it, it can quite literally block off an, ex, an exit route. And so when Hudson turns around from the Northeast Passage in 1608 and 1609, he's doing it because he's afraid he's going to get trapped in ice, and he's absolutely correct. And in 1610, when he goes into what is now Hudson's Bay, he is very conscious of, of, of the dates and realizing that if he does not find the Northwest Passage, uh, he is, there's a certain moment where they are making a decision to stay in, in North America mm-hmm. because there's not going to be a way back. So in his mind, the ideal passage would probably be something from uh, mid-April to sometime in late September, early October, because by then, if he was already cleared of the Arctic ice, he would be fine sailing back into England. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay, so let's talk about the final voyage itself. Why don't you set the scene for us and get them underway and then get them to North America, where the, the, the story really heats up and the plot thickens. Okay. So in the spring of 1610, Hudson, uh, with the backing of some very uh, influential um, Englishmen, um, including Thomas Smith, who would eventually come and sort of bail out the finances of the Virginia Company to keep it solvent in the late 16 teens. Uh, with this kind of backing, Hudson puts the ship together. It, it's Hudson, two boys, uh, and 21 men. And so they sail off from London. Almost immediately, one of the men causes trouble. We don't know the, the nature of the trouble, and Hudson puts him off. And so now they go across the Atlantic. So now there are 23 of them total going across the Atlantic. And so he sails on a northwestern course, uh, goes around Iceland, uh, around Greenland, and then heads into um, a strait that no English person had explored previously. He, he knows that John Davis, another navigator explorer, had been there in the, 15th, in the, in the late 16th century. Uh, and it tried one way, sort of past really sort of off the west coast of, of Greenland, and that didn't work. And so Hudson knows that's not going to work. So he tries this other way, uh, which Davis had described but didn't go into. And so Hudson goes into this waterway, which now we call Hudson Strait, and he follows it through until he opens into this 
large inland sea. Uh, when Purchase wrote about this later on, you know, Purchase sort of imagined Hudson thinking, aha, this must be the great moment, because now what body of water could this be except the opening to South Sea, the Pacific Ocean as we call it. And so Hudson and his men sail into the bay. They don't know how big this body of water is. And the trick always with trying to find the Northwest Passage was to look at the, at the movement of water, at the, move, at the movement of the tides. Because if they could figure that tides were coming in from the West, this is once they're in Hudson's Bay, as opposed to from the East, then they could think, aha, there must be the ocean there, and we're not just seeing water following Atlantic tidal patterns. And so they sail into the bay, they're reading the waters, uh, as it were, and this is taking some time over the summer, and they're encountering in the northern part of Hudson's Bay a lot of ice. And so Hudson knows that the time is going to be relatively brief, that they have to make a decision. So they have a few weeks, and they're looking and looking for a way to go head farther west. And purportedly at one point, uh, they, they realize they haven't found the passage. There's a very good chance they weren't going to find it yet. Uh, you find it that season. And so they have this debate on the ship. What should they do? Should they go home while they still have the chance? Uh, there's sort of a narrowing window. Or should they stay on? And uh, it's not well documented what they said. I mean, there's some reference to it. And there was some division on the ship. But basically, Hudson read the ship's, the crew's mind as saying, okay, let's, let's go on. And so they then guide the ship as far south as they can, at least from the surviving documents. So they guide the ship as far south as they can. I think they're doing this because by the logic that Europeans had at the time where they equate latitude with climate, the farther south they can go, the warmer the weather will be. And in fact, they reach 52 degrees north latitude, which is about the same latitude as London. Unfortunately, uh, in the area that we now call James Bay, Hudson and his men didn't name this. Uh, so they sail out of Hudson's Bay into James Bay, which comes off Hudson's Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, they're about 52 degrees, and the ship becomes encased with ice, encased by ice. And this is a very sort of significant moment in any in any voyage because the ice, James Bay is famous for its winds, famous for its infamous, for its cold, um, and they have to figure out where to position the ship. And the western part of of James Bay is fairly shallow, and the eastern part is steeper but rockier. But it turns out that the smarter thing today could get much closer to the actual coastline on the eastern side of, the, of James Bay, which is where they probably went from what we can infer from what we can get from the documents. And they did that because they knew that once the ship was going to get encased in ice, they were going to need to get onto the land or to build a shelter to live in and to try to find whatever food they can uh, to get through the winter. And had they gone on the other side of the bay, it would have been so shallow they might have beached themselves far from shore. It would have been much more difficult. Mm-hmm. So as far as we can tell, they go to the eastern part of James Bay, and they, they, the ship gets encased with ice. And in all likelihood, as far as we can tell, the ship carpenter played a major role here by essentially probably punching holes systematically in the hull in order to reduce the pressure of the ice on the outside. I mean, when a 19th century explorer was there on a much bigger ship, 
he talked about the grinding of the ice sounding as loud as thunder. Mm-hmm. That was sort of a very vivid way of thinking about the real force of this, of nature against artifice, against the ship that these men had created. And so the ship's carpenter presumably played a role. Anyway, as far as we can tell, as far as I've inferred from other voyages, which are really well documented in the same area, uh, the ship becomes encased with ice. Uh, over the course, and the men probably then went on land and built shelter. Mm-hmm. What over does, the course of, I'm sorry to interrupt you. What, what does the land look like up there? Is it, is it tundra, or is it is it forested, or what? What, what, what do no, we imagine? It's not, it's, there, there are these um, sort of stunted trees that are there. It's more. It's uh, the coastline is very is rocky. It would have all been covered with snow. Um, mm-hmm. And but there's not much forest. There's forest farther south, uh, and you know it's unclear how much um, you know wood they would have gotten from the forest. But the, but there is driftwood in the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was fairly common, and, and they probably used driftwood, um, some of the materials from the sails, sort of anything they could strip from the boat um, to build these. What I'm guessing was a very rudimentary uh, shelter. I mean, the best documentation we have of these shelters actually comes from an explorer who comes next to the area in the 1630s, and he describes these unbearable conditions that these people lived in, and they did much better than Hudson's mm-hmm. guys did. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so during the, sorry, during the course of the winter, then, one man dies, and the man who dies is actually uh, the gunner, another one of the guys sort of with special uh, skill on the ship. Um, and the gunner dies, uh, circumstances not well explained, although one of the documents suggests that Hudson wasn't very nice to him. We don't really know what that meant, although it's a clue, along with some of the other clues that had emerged, that there were some real tensions on board the ship during uh, the winter. And so they get encased in ice, and during the winter, Hudson, men the men go on land, as far as I know. Hudson then, at one point, um, Hudson and a couple of the others meet a local man, probably a Cree uh, Indian, uh, who comes and Hudson hopes to trade with him. And so they have a little bit of trade back and forth. But then Hudson is under the impression that the man will come back uh, and trade some more. But in fact, after one or two sessions, the man disappears again. And mm-hmm. I, I sort of argue in the book, had Hudson managed to have good relations with this man, you know, who knows? Maybe the Cree would have taken care of him and his crew, and they might have done much better. Mm-hmm. But that's hypothetical. But it does indicate to us, uh, which is something we know from the travel documents, that these explorers were interested wherever possible in making contact with indigenous people. And this is sort of an important thing for American historians in particular to realize that, you know, for these exploratory journals, journeys, you know, it was, you needed to make good relations with people. You didn't want to make enemies with people you found there. Uh, and we sort of, you know, sometimes historians de-emphasize the significance of the local knowledge indigenous people have mm-hmm. that could have been very helpful. Anyways, mm-hmm. it turns out, though, this, the Cree man uh, doesn't come back again. As, as the spring comes sort of gradually uh, to this area, the snow starts to melt, uh, the water in the bay is still strong, still thick, and so the ship remains encased uh, with ice. Hudson then goes to look for um, the Cree Indians. I mean, they don't identify them as Cree, but that's who lives in the area. So Hudson goes off to look for them, has absolutely no luck in finding them. While he's gone, um, 
some of the men, a few of the men, apparently uh, take a small, go for a little fishing expedition in a small boat called a shallop. Uh, one of the other things that a carpenter would do on a ship would be to take these boats. We would think of them, I would sort of say to people, they're kind of like shallow bottom lifeboats sort of on a ship, but they were transported in halves because they took up much less space that way. So mm-hmm. one of the things a ship carpenter would do is when they got to an area where they would need a shallow bottom little rowboat, the ship carpenter would put them together. Mm-hmm. So some of these men get on this little sh- uh, little shallop and they go fishing, and apparently out there they, they hack this plot, and they say, you know, this is a disaster. We've got to... We've got to get rid of Hudson. Hudson's Hudson's going to kill all of us. Mm-hmm. And so when we get back, we have to do something about it. And in the specific context, what they claimed they were concerned about is over the course of the winter, some of the men on the ship had become infirm. Uh, they had become either injured or ill. The mathematician was among them. It's unclear what was really wrong with them. But these men, who at least thought of themselves as physically able uh uh, these men thought that, that bet their best way to survive would be if Hudson stopped feeding those who would probably die and use their diminishing stores just for those who could live and survive a trip back to England, which is all they wanted at that point. They did not want to continue the expedition for the Northwest Passage. And so the specific thing that they would eventually say to Hudson is, you know, basically, you know, you're giving food to your favorites, you're feeding people who are going to die, this is, we, you know, this is a bad strategy. You're going to doom the whole voyage. You should basically, you know, get rid of these guys, and we should all go home. They figure correctly that Hudson is not going to go along with this, and so Hudson comes back from his his voyage, uh, his little thing, unable to find the Cree. The discovery finally, the ice thaws in mid June. They push off from their winter encampment, never been found. We surmise it's somewhere around 52 degrees. I believe, on the eastern shore of James Bay, not been found. There's no archaeological evidence for Mm -hmm. They start to go home, and when they are somewhere farther north as they're sailing up the east coast of first James Bay and then Hudson's Bay, several of these men go into Hudson's uh, cabin early in the morning. They tie him up. uh, They pull out one of the shallops. They lower him onto the shallop. They put his 17-year-old son on the shallop. Uh, They put... Uh, half a dozen of these infirm men on the shallop, and then the ship's carpenter, who Hudson had promoted uh, to basically to be his top mate during the voyage, which very much angered, uh, sort of upset the little hierarchy on the ship during the winter. Uh, ship's carpenter, who the, the mutineers claimed they wanted to bring back to England because he's perfectly healthy and he'd be a very good guy to have on a ship, he chose to go with Hudson. Mm-hmm. So then it's Hudson, his son, and these other seven are put on this shallop, uh, and literally they cut the rope, and Discovery sort of unfurls its mainsails and starts to sail away. Uh, there is uh, one report that suggests that the people on the shallop you know, tried to rig a little sail and, and sort of said, you know, said during the mutiny, hey, we'll catch up to you to someone they thought was one of their friends among the survivors, but it would have been impossible. Well, I don't know impossible. They didn't do it. Uh, and so they sail off, and no European ever sees them again. It's unclear if whoever sees them again. As the ship is then heading uh, northward, now Hudson is gone, now the crew is, you know, fewer of them. As the ship heads northward, they see a group of Inuit on the shoreline, 
uh, waving to them. And the English guys are thinking, well, this is great because we can trade with them. <laughs> they probably already figured out that Inuit, like other you know, northern indigenous uh, western hemisphere peoples, really wanted some things that Europeans had on their ships, like metal nails, for iron nails, for example, and things which the English would call sort of trinkets or insignificant things, mirrors, pieces of glass, beads, things like this, uh, which in all possibility, in all likelihood, Hudson ship had on it. You know, they were on the discovery, the anticipation of meeting people. They thought, okay, we'll trade with these Inuit, and that'll be good. And so five guys go to the shoreline. They're all communicating in signs because they don't have a mutual, they don't have a language that anyone can understand, that all of them can understand, I should say. And something happens. It's unclear what that is, but according to the English, which is the only documentation we have of it, the only documentation I've ever found of it, um, according to the English, the Inuit turn on them and mortally wound four of the five. Uh, but significantly, these men purportedly make it back to uh, the discovery, make it onto the decks of the ship, and then basically bleed to death. Uh, and then their bodies presumably buried at sea. But that's a very important detail, the fact that they made it back to the ship and bled all over it. And so as the ship goes through the North Atlantic, another man dies, a man named Robert Jewett or Jouet, um, who had been Hudson's companion in 1609, had been the sort of top mate at the beginning of the voyage, but clearly had fallen out with Hudson for reasons that are not entirely clear. Uh, somewhere in the North Atlantic, uh, this man dies. I mean, these guys, the ones on the board at this point, you know, they're, they're starving. I mean, they're sort of getting by with very little uh, food. I mean, they talk about sort of, you know, boiling the bones of seabirds uh, that they've captured. Uh, and at this point, then if you remember taking away the one man Hudson got rid of before they left England, the gunner who died over the winter, the nine uh, who were sort of dispatched in the mutiny, the four killed by the Inuit, and then Jewett, basically then there are only eight people left on this mm -hmm. ship, uh, one of whom is a boy. We don't know the age of the boy. I'm, he's probably a teenage boy. And they sort of stumble back to uh, to Galway Harbor, looking for anyone. That's the first sort of place they find. Look for anyone who can help them. They eventually cut a deal, uh, and they find a captain who puts some other men on the ship uh, after sort of demanding from these survivors that they pay with an anchor and some cable because they have no money. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's this incredible moment. They think, aha, we're finally home. They found some English-speaking people, and they're like, you want to go to London? That's fine. By the way, we're going to strip your ship to get there. <laughs> uh, so eventually they make it back, and they sail up the Thames, and they, and they make it to London. Uh, and it's at that point where, you know, as if the story wasn't sort of um, compelling on its own, at that point the survivors are hauled uh, before a commission called the Masters of Trinity House a guild uh, set up in the 16th century to sort of uh, police what happened on English ships abroad. And they say, what happened? And the guys say, oh, this is terrible. There was this mutiny. Fortunately, the five men responsible for the mutiny are all dead. None of us had anything to do mm -hmm. with them, <laughs> right? 
And so this leads to, as is not surprising, enduring suspicion about these men. And the suspicion remains in London over the next few years. Um, and a couple of the men on this, you know, of these survivors, in fact, go and uh, go in and participate in other sort of Arctic explorations over the next few years. But there's enough suspicion that eventually authorities decide, okay, they need to launch a, another sort of systematic formal inquiry into what happened. The Master of Trinity House, when they interrogated them in 1611, sort of said, tell us what happened. But then it turned out what the Masters of Trinity House really wanted to know is, did you find the way to the Northwest Passage? <laughs> and so half of that testimony or more is about did they find yeah. signs of the Northwest Passage, which gives you a clue that the Master of Trinity House were really interested in sort of answering that big question, perhaps a little less interested in what happened to poor Henry Hudson. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. eventually there is a murder trial. Uh, four of the survivors go on trial for murder, um, and the verdict for the three that survived, the, the documents are very tattered and da- damaged for this time period, so we don't have real in-depth testimony. What we have are depositions, series of depositions, and then uh, this verdict. Uh, they are found not guilty. Now, they are found not guilty in a court the same day uh, that a number of other Englishmen are convicted of piracy and hanged. Mm-hmm. And as mm-hmm. I talk about in the book, I think what really is going on is less, though the, the authorities really want to solve what happened to Hudson, they want to know what they're really trying to do is show that the state is very concerned with piracy because a lot of Englishmen at this point had been sort of swept up by Barbary pirates and forced into slavery within Islam, and, mm-hmm. and you know, this to these Protestant Christians was, you know, worse than death. And so they're very concerned about the increase in piracy. There have been these public discussions of piracy in England at exactly uh, this moment, and the depositions of the survivors, the testimony of the survivors, you can tell they are being asked, was piracy behind the mutiny? Mm-hmm. That it, it wasn't just were these guys thinking we have to get rid of Hudson because he's, he's incompetent and will justify everything when we get home. You know, they're, they're, the authorities are basically saying, is this another case of piracy we need to be worried about? And in the end, they couldn't prove it. They could prove that these men had done, they couldn't prove anything. They still, they only presumed that Hudson was dead, as do I presume Hudson, you know, died. I talk about this at the end of the book. Um, but in fact, there is no body. There's no sign of Hudson at the time. Later on, there would be signs that people would find. But at the time, there's nothing, and so they are acquitted, uh, I would guess, because of lack of evidence, although the records are not, you know, we have no, you know, sort of official judgments other than just not guilty. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. I see. Let, let, me, let me ask you this. It's a kind of historiographical question, really. Uh, how confident are you, given the state of the sources? And I, and I think that people that haven't worked on this period might be interested to hear a little bit about uh, the disposition of the sources. How confident are you that you have the story straight? And and how did you um, use the sources in such a way as to determine the course of events? Okay. I think that's a great question. And I think that what really helped me with understanding and interpreting the documents is the fact that I'd spent, you know, those 10 to 12 years writing about, <laughs> thinking about Hacklet. And so I was had been for quite a while now immersed in the sources 
from this time period. And so I hope immersed into them enough to sort of have a sense of how to read them critically, which I do think is really important. So what we have, um, when Hacklett published and then when Purchase published, when Purchase published in 1625, the early Purchase books are very different. I won't talk about that. When Purchase published the Hudson Doctrine, which is in 1625, what you essentially have is a printed version of materials, most of the materials in the book, which presumably were in some sort of manuscript form earlier. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are, in fact, instances in Hacklet uh, where he goes and basically reports what someone told him. But a lot of it is presumably based on some sort of written evidence. Most of that written evidence does not survive, uh, you know, in terms of the manuscripts. And so what we have for Hudson, uh, each of Hudson's journeys that we know about, that is, we don't know if he did something before 1607, um, but the ones that he captained, each one produced written accounts. So there's an account of 1607, there's an account of 1608, there's an account of 1609, which is actually written by Jewett, this guy who purportedly turns against Hudson in 1610, 1611. And then for the 1610-1611, we in fact have three separate written accounts. Mm-hmm. We have a captain's log, essentially, that Hudson kept which is incomplete by the time Purchase has it. And there are a couple of references in other documents in the mid-16-teens which indicate that this piece of writing, which presumably ended at the, top, at the date of the mutiny in June of 1611, that pages had been torn from it. But at earlier, someone had seen more of it than existed when Purchase had it. And I would guess that the people who survived this journey probably took out other passages which put them in a bad light. So we know that that document exists but is damaged. Also, on the on the deck of the ship, I mean, the reason I mentioned the fact of the men bleeding to death is when the ship comes home, there's blood all over the decks, and the authorities could reasonably guess these guys murdered Hudson, mm-hmm. and this is his blood, and his possessions have been scattered, and it's very mysterious. And there are questions about what happened on the decks, and that's why they explain where these guys died. But when the, when the masters of the Trinity House search the ship, or have the search ship for them, they find the mathematician's desk, and in that desk there is a note that he read. His name is Thomas Widows, and Widows writes this note, which indicates some earlier tensions on the ship. It's not about the mutiny, but earlier tensions on the ship. They have this note. There's the master Trinity has to have this note, and then when it goes to the High Court of Admiralty, they have the note because you can tell that they're referring to the note uh, itself. So that's a second mm-hmm. document. And then the major documentation we have is this incredibly long story um, by a man named Abacuck Prickett, who becomes essentially the chronicler of this. I mean, these volumes, I know, you know, you've worked with Hackett. I mean, these are folio-sized volumes, very, you know, uh, you know, very thickly set with print, and Prickett's testimony goes for pages of this. I mean, this is a very long report, uh, it, but it very consistently puts Prickett in. It's a very self-serving report because Prickett has written it. We don't know, that as it's impossible to know from reading that text, whether Prickett is writing it as the journey is going on, as Hudson presumably wrote his, because Hudson's is sort of a day-by-day, and Prickett recreates in part the day-by-day, but then leaves the day-by-day behind, and then we don't know. Or we don't know if he maybe made it up after the fact, because after all, he has survived, 
and people are presuming that he might be a mutineer. So we have this long document, and we and there is no manuscript that survives. The only version that survives, the earliest version, is the 1625 printing of it by Purchase. Mm-hmm. Now, Purchase by 1625, uh, Purchase when he used to get documents in the early 16-teens, he publishes collections in 1613, 1614, 1617. Purchase rewrote accounts then. But by 1625, he had embraced Hacklip's method, purportedly embraced Hacklip's method, of just presenting the documents as they appeared to him. At least this is what he claimed, and that's what Hacklip claimed he was doing also. Because Hacklip really believed that, you know, he, he couldn't necessarily know the truth of a document, but he shouldn't change a document. He should put it as he found it, basically. Mm-hmm. Purchase is doing that. So I take seriously that Purchase probably produced the document uh, that Prickett had written, although we don't know when he wrote it. Before the murder trial, after the murder trial, we don't know. So there's a certain mystery to it. Mm-hmm. But that provides a lot of day-to-day detail. But then what I did as a historian, you know, I wanted to find sort of external sources of authority. And so what does survive external from these things, which are all printed by Purchase, and so theoretically run the risk of having been changed. What also survives are, is the testimony in front of the Masters of Trinity House. Uh, and what also survives are these depositions uh, from the murder trial at the High Court of Admiralty. And they provide very important sort of confirming details for crucial aspects of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, because I'm a historian and I'm not there at the moment, I mean, this is one of the advantages that we have as historians, I could then read later documents about this place to try to understand it as someone in the 17th century could have understood it. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. Captain Thomas James, who uh, goes there in the 1630s, that's why J- James Bay got its name, goes there in the 1630s and describes this place where, as far as we can tell, Hudson spent the winter and describes this, you know, with the nature of, you know, what the weather was like, the nature of what the resources were like, all these things, and finds two sharpened stakes in, a, in the ground, mm-hmm. which he surmises uh, must have been chopped uh, using an English-style axe. Now, there's no way of knowing mm-hmm. if this is true or not. Um, and various people have said, you know, this could very easily have been, you know, in, in things left over from an indigenous, you know, camp. And that's possible, although... I think, and an early, an early 19th century editor pointed this out, and I think that he is probably right. I think that the stakes were probably used to moor um, uh, the shallop, because the Cree and Inuit who live in the area are paddling around in these very lightweight kayaks that they would pull up on the shore, and um, you know would not have any need to sort of tie them up in a certain sense. Whereas the shallop would have been a heavy, and we know they're in a shallop from the testimony. Um, we have, you know, they would have had to, to lash. So there's a sense that maybe they tied it up there. Mm-hmm. Then, so we have these little fragments from James. And then in 1671, there's another English expedition to the area. This is right sort of on the eve of the founding of the Hudson's Bay Company. There's another expedition in this area, uh, overwinters, approximately where Hudson overwintered. And this guy, in his, there's a manuscript account of this in the Guildhall Library, and there's an uh, extract from it, which has been copied, which is in the uh, Latter-day Saints Library, so it's pretty available on microfilm. Um, 
there is this manuscript in which this guy said, we were getting ready to sail back to England, so I thought I would poke around a little more, so I got it a shallow. That is the same kind of boat Hudson was in, because it's good for coasting around these shallows where there are rocks. And he sails, he paddles over to a little island, and they're kind of looking around the island, and he sees this remains of a dwelling. And he writes in his journal, basically, found a house not of the Indian construction. This must be where Hudson died. Mm. Uh, now, unfortunately, archaeologists have never found those stakes in the ground. They've never found this dwelling that this man named Gorst uh, claimed he saw. But I use those to sort of help locate, as do others. I mean, I'm not the first, as do others, to locate the fact that Hudson probably was in this area. And that helps me to have more faith in Prickett's narrative for getting those details correct. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I just sort of, and then I read the trial testimony, which is not extensive, but it's not bad, you know, as closely, you know, as I can. And that's where I sort of picked up the hints about uh, piracy, because it's in those documents. It's not in Mm -hmm. Prickett. I mean, and I think that really puts Hudson and this whole sort of investigation of Hudson into uh, England in the 16-teens. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a terrific kind of It's a detective sort of story, you know, you have to find these things. And, and if you ever want to mount an, an expedition to Hudson Bay to look for all this stuff, I'm, I'm game. I'm available, okay? We'll go. <laughs> okay, let's, let's do it together sometime. I would love so to do make, it, yeah. Let's make sure we go in the summer, though. Yeah, the summer sounds a lot better. Um, uh, Peter, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I really, really appreciate it. It's fascinating. Um, but let me ask you our final uh, traditional uh, question here on New Books in History, and that is, what is your next project? What are you working on now? Well, actually, uh, I have accepted an invitation from Oxford to write Volume 1 of the Oxford History of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is their really big series. You know, as Oxford always points out, you know, three of them have won the Pulitzer Prize. Wow. You know, these are these kind of big doorstopper mm-hmm. books. I mean, uh, McPherson's Battle Cry Freedom, you know, is in this series. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, and so I am writing, I'm going to write Volume 1, and it's going to be a narrative history. Now, there's all sorts of little quirks to this, but basically a narrative history of the territory that will eventually become the United States from around the 1520s, mm-hmm. um, when the Spanish start making serious incursions into the mainland of, of you know, what becomes the United States, until this moment of 1680, 1681, where we have the Pueblo Revolt in the West and the arrival of William Penn in the East. Mm-hmm. And if you sort of have the ability to sort of stop time, then I would suggest you could not predict, you know, that there would be a United States. I think that's sort of the best thing I can leave my readers with, sort of a sense of the contingencies of the past that things develop in ways that you just can't expect. So that's what I'm launching into. Uh, those books tend to be, you know, 900,000 pages long, so it's going to take me a little while to write it. <laughs> a little while. That's a, to put it mildly. Well, when it's done, you're going to be on the show again, and we can talk about it, okay? I'll look forward to it. All right. I should, tell, I should tell our uh, uh, listeners that we've been talking to Peter Mancall today about his book, uh, Fatal Journey, The Final Expedition of Henry Hudson, A Tale of Mutiny and Murder in the Arctic. And it's a fascinating book. I encourage you to go out and buy it. Uh, and I really enjoyed talking to Peter today. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Marshall. Okay, take care now. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Peter Mancall about his book, 
Fatal Journey, The Final Expedition of Henry Hudson, A Tale of Mutiny and Murder in the Arctic. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.